Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on abortion, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode six, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you, all while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 2012 sci-fi horror film Prometheus. It was written by Damon Lindelof and John Spates, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Numi Rapace, Michael Fassbender, Guy Pierce, Idris Elba, Logan Marshall Green, and Charlize Theron. Logan Marshall Green. He is the Aldi's Tom Hardy. Oh, oh. but sometimes Aldi's is what you want. You know, sometimes it's what you need. <laughs> okay, so oh, geez. we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Prometheus is also like a semi-prequel to the 1979 film Alien, and this is just my opinion, but I don't think you need to watch any of the other Alien films in order to watch Prometheus. No, I don't think so either. Okay, so good. We're on the same page. So you don't need to brush up on your Alien films to watch Prometheus. Just enjoy the ride. You good. All right, so are you guys still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. All right, so development on a fifth film in the Alien franchise was in progress by 2002. Wow. And director Ridley Scott considered returning to the series he created with his 1979 science fiction horror film, Alien, to pursue a prequel that would maybe explore the engineered origins of the series' alien creatures, the Xenomorphs. Oh. Uh, Aliens, which is Alien 2, Aliens director James Cameron discussed the potential for a sequel with Scott and began working with another writer on the story for the film. It was then that 20th Century Fox approached Cameron with a script for a crossover film that would put the series Xenomorphs against the title Aliens of the Predator films. (laughs) This project became the 2004 science fiction film Alien versus Predator. Pure cinematic gold. <laughs> Listen, there's so many terrible things wrong with that film. Yeah. But I love the final girl. Mm-hmm. She is one of the best final girls, and she is not given enough credit in Hell yes. horror and sci-fi films. Oh, my God. So... Cameron, believing the crossover would kill the validity of the franchise, (laughs) stopped working on his own alien project with Scott to pursue another film. You might have heard of it as Avatar. Oh, God. So by May of 2009, 20th Century Fox showed interest in creating another alien movie, this time a prequel reboot of sorts with Ridley Scott back in the director's chair. However, Scott was not feeling up to direct and encouraged the studio to hire someone else. (laughs) There was a major clash between the film studio and Scott, and a month later, the prequel reboot was just canceled. Oh, God. However, another month went by, and Scott contacted Fox and said that, you know what, I'm going to direct it. (laughs) Make up your mind! So, in July of 2009, 20th Century Fox had a director, and then they had a screenwriter, which was John Spates. Hmm. And let's jump ahead one year and go to June 2010. Scott announced that the script was complete and that pre-production would begin, and the filming date was set for January of 2011. However, by July 2010, infamous writer for the ABC hit TV show Lost, Damon Lindelof, had been hired to redevelop Spate's screenplay. In October 2010, Lindelof submitted his rewritten screenplay to 20th Century Fox. It was approved, and not long after that, it was kept under lock and key until the film's release. Hmm. So, in December of 2010, it was reported that the film would be called Paradise, named after John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. 
But Ridley Scott considered that this would convey too much information about the film, which, okay. So Fox (laughs) CEO Thomas Rothman suggested calling it Prometheus. Okay, but what? Paradise (laughs) could be interpreted in in any way. Right. But Prometheus... We'll get into this. Yeah, yeah. We all know what Prometheus and who Prometheus is. But anyway, so more than the film itself, Prometheus is well known for its viral marketing campaign, which began on February 28th, 2012, with the release of a video featuring a TED Talk speech by Guy Pearce in character as Peter Wayland about his vision for the future. Do you remember that when it came out? I don't because like... At that time, I wasn't, like, super into the Alien franchise, okay. so I it wasn't really, like, a blip on my radar. And then, like, once the film kind of gained popularity, I did. I remember seeing that one, but the one that stuck out with me the most is the one I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Mm. But during the 2012 San Francisco WonderCon, attendees at the film's panel were given Wayland Corporation business cards that directed them to a website and a telephone number. After calling the number, the caller was sent a text message from Wayland Corporation corporation that linked them to a video that was presented as an advertisement for the David 8 Android, narrated by Fassbender. And that's what I remember. I wasn't at WonderCon or anything, but when it was online, uh, it actually was released online to everybody on April 17th, on April 17th, 2012. Um, I remember like my husband and I watching it and we were just like, what is this movie going to be about? Like, this is cool. Yeah. So the extended version came out in April. And in in this version, it lists like the Android's features, including its ability to seamlessly replicate human emotions without the restrictions of ethics or distress. (laughs) So the premiere of Prometheus took place on May 31st, 2012 in London. The film was released in the United Kingdom on June 1st, 2012 and in North America on June 8th, 2012. So financially, Prometheus was a huge success, and with over 1.6 million tickets being pre-sold in the UK alone, it actually ended up being the most pre-booked film that summer and beat the concluding film to the Harry Potter franchise and Cameron's Avatar. Wow. Prometheus earned $126.4 million in North America and $276.9 million elsewhere for a worldwide total of $403. Million, making it the 18th highest grossing film of 2012, and at its peak, it was the 155th highest grossing film worldwide. That is insane. Yeah. Oh my god. So the majority of the film's critics like enjoyed the movie a lot, but general audiences seem to be completely let down. Many complained that the film was too quote unquote smart <laughs> or that it didn't make any sense. There were also some complaints that the film was only pretending to be smart and that it was really just pretentious and obvious. Oh my God. Some even stated that the film was the worst thing they had seen in theaters since Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. <laughs> Oh, my God. Honestly, I think anyone who even enjoys the film just a little bit can agree with this statement I'm about to read. According to film critic and co-host of the YouTube show Half in the Bag, Jay Bauman says of the film, quote, There's a lot of things in the movie that are left either open-ended or not explained, and I don't want to be so quick to dismiss it. I'd like to give the movie more credit. The movie raises more questions than it does answers, and I appreciate the fact that movies can let you fill in the gaps or make you do some of the brain work. But I don't know if this is actually doing that or not. Yeah. The lack of resolution is sort of the point? Yeah. So, of course... There was eventually a sequel called Alien Covenant that came out in 2017 that answered some of the questions, Mm -hmm. but kind of not really. Yeah, it's very vague. Yeah. So Mm. with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. In the year 2089, scientist Elizabeth Shaw and her partner and her partner Charlie Holloway lead an exploration into deep space to find the secret behind what they call engineers or the race that created human life. They are traveling aboard a ship called Prometheus with their project totally funded by the Wayland Corporation with a woman named Vickers as the overseer, along with her cyborg assistant David, who keeps the crew alive and well during their two year journey in cryostasis. 
They're among a team of scientists that include medical staff, biologists, rock experts, and experienced pilots. But when the crew lands on a distant moon called LV-223, it soon becomes clear that their discovery is deadly and no amount of previous knowledge could prepare them for what lies ahead. As the crew explores the barren planet, they enter a tomb-like structure full of cylinders of black liquid. They make shocking discoveries about who these engineers really are, and that although they created humans, they are unmerciful in their quest to create biological weaponry out of their own DNA as well. Several crew members are attacked by monstrous beings that were contained in the cylinders after getting stranded outside the ship, and as Elizabeth and Charlie examine their findings on the planet and discover more about their origins— David the Cyborg longs to understand his true purpose as well, and he sabotages the mission by conducting his own experiments with the engineer's creations by slipping some of the DNA found in the cylinders into Charlie's drink. This sets off a chain of events that lead to the ultimate demise of the entire crew. As Charlie's body becomes a host for the deadly DNA, Elizabeth becomes pregnant after having sex with him, but the fetus turns out to be some sort of alien creature that rapidly evolves in her womb. Charlie is killed by Vickers after she refuses to let him back onto the ship in his infected state, and Elizabeth is forced to contend with her predicament basically by herself. After performing an emergency C-section on herself in the medical pod, she learns that Wayland, who was presumed dead, was actually in cryostasis aboard the ship, and he had been waiting for them to make their discovery so that he too could meet the engineers and find a way to cheat his own death. It was the goal of Wayland all along to hire the scientists to find the answers he was looking for in order to be granted immortality, defying the natural order of his human condition. However, upon meeting the last engineer left on LV-223, Wayland is killed instantly and David is beheaded. Elizabeth runs back to the ship to warn the rest of the crew that the engineer is awake and planned to leave the planet and that she feared he would be heading back to Earth to destroy it. In an effort to prevent this from happening, Yannick, the Prometheus's captain, sacrifices himself with his crew alongside him by flying the Prometheus into the engineer's ship as he tries to flee the planet. Meanwhile, Elizabeth discovers that David is still active, despite having his head separated from his body. She rescues him, and together they launch an engineer ship in an attempt to find the engineer's home planet. Elizabeth seeks more information, and she is determined to find out why the engineers wanted to destroy the human race that they created. Wow, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. That is a lot to digest. (laughs) Yes, but I think you condensed it very well. Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks. Yeah. So uh, the Bechdel test. Yes, it actually does pass a few times. Yay! Helps that there are three women in this movie that yes. talk together. Yes. And even though one of them has a boyfriend, there's, you know, they have jobs. Yeah. They got jobs to do. <laughs> They've got jobs and names. Yep. So it's wonderful. Cool. Uh, Nancy's dream team test, though, does not do well here. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Mm. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Oh, man. Ay, ay, ay. So that was pretty rough. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the discussion. Let's first talk about who the heck Prometheus is Mm -hmm. in mythology. Now, I have a very good friend, Kate motherfucking Scully. (laughs) She is one of my best friends, and I've known her since college, and she loves history. Mm -hmm. She loves mythology, and she is just a box of beautiful, beautiful knowledge. Aww. Honestly, if you have any questions about the Tudors or about medieval times <laughs> or about mythology, Greek mythology especially, she will give you what you need. Oh, my God. So I asked her, I said, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you just give me like a one minute, like, who is the Titan Prometheus and what happened with him? Yeah. I said, I could go online and look it up, but I feel like you are better than the internet. <laughs> ah, yes. And so this is exactly what she wrote me. 
Prometheus was a titan and a trickster figure. The OG humanitarian, he <laughs> created humans from clay under the orders of Zeus and immediately became very attached to the little boogers, as well as pitying them for their sheer pathetic natures. Uh-huh. Wanting to give them a survival boost, Prometheus pulled off a heist to sneak onto Mount Olympus, resident of the gods, and steal, I think it's Hephaestasus? Sorry, Kate. <laughs> Most treasured tool, fire, from the furnace he worked and snuck it to Earth by hiding it in a hollow fennel stalk. <laughs> okay. Prometheus even gave the humans a TED Talk. Quote, so you own a god's tool, unquote, which included metallurgy and blacksmithing. Wow. Zeus, furious at the transgression, had Prometheus taken far to the east to Mount Caucasus. Caucasus. <laughs> Again, I'm sorry, Kay. I'm letting you down. The Titan was tied to a boulder, and every day an eagle would come and eat his liver, while every night the liver would regrow and Prometheus would heal for a new day's torment. Cute. After many years passed, Zeus's own son, Hercules, off on another of his labors, came upon Prometheus and took pity on him. Hercules killed the giant eagle and released Prometheus from his bonds. Zeus strangely was cool with the prison break, but insisted that Prometheus wear a ring upon his finger, made from the iron of his chains, to forever remind him of his crime. Oh... So thank you, Kate, for writing that for me. And thank you, Kate, for being a patron. Really, really appreciate that. Kate, you're the best. So now this is interesting because Wayland in this film talks about why he decided to name the ship Prometheus and that it was from this story. He's inspired by Prometheus and inspired by what Prometheus has done, which makes sense because humans have created robots like mm-hmm. David. So they've stolen fire, so to speak, from the engineers. Yeah. But it's the engineers who have created the humans out of clay, so to speak. So who in this film is the Titan figure? Yeah, if the engineers are the Titans, this would imply that there exists some greater force from whom the fire of creation has either been bestowed or stolen. Meaning that Ellie Shaw is right to hold on to her father's cross and ask, who created the engineers? Honestly, I think her faith is still valid. Yeah. But, you know, we're going to talk about more about religion later. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's start off with Lovecraftian horror and Prometheus. <laughs> so I'm about to go on a rant. Um, I really struggled with this because I want to talk about how cosmic horror inspired Ridley Scott, but I'm also very well aware how much of a dick H.P. Lovecraft was. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Let's just start with this. Lovecraftian horror is a subgenre of horror fiction that emphasizes the cosmic horror of the unknown or the unknowable over gore and other elements of shock. It is named after American author H.P. Lovecraft, who was born in 1890 and died in 1937. Now, yes, I do know that Lovecraft was a terrible outspoken racist. There's no dancing around it. He freaking fucking sucked. (laughs) As a human, he's disgusting. And By talking about cosmic horror in this episode, I'm not saying that I respect H.P. Lovecraft in any way. What I'm saying is that there's no denying that his work had a major influence on this film. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think by going deep into his work, we can easily see how he used his ugly, ugly racism to write horror. Yeah. So that's what we're going to discuss. Fuck H.P. Lovecraft. He's a piece of shit. (laughs) All right. So, according to David McWilliam, in his article, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraftian Cosmic Horror and Post-Human Creationism in Ridley Scott's Prometheus, he says, quote, Lovecraftian Cosmic Horror is, at its core, a nihilistic view of the universe that, if accepted, threatens to unravel human epistemology as currently understood. It posits that scientific advances do not offer the prospect of a progressive future, but risk revealing our insignificance and powerlessness on a cosmic scale. Mm -hmm. A philosophy outlined in H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. So as China Mealville notes, quote, 
Lovecraft's horror is not one of intrusions, but of realization. The world has always been implacably bleak. The horror lies in our acknowledging that fact, unquote. So uh, David McWilliam comments on this and says, in such a world, belief in the intrinsic value of human life is a delusion that we cling to in order to remain sane. (laughs) Thus, cosmic horror fundamentally challenges our anthropocentric understanding of the universe. It is this unveiling of human insignificance that Ridley Scott's Prometheus stages. Yeah. So um, I also think it's safe to say that Prometheus bears a lot of resemblance to Lovecraft's uh, short story At the Mountains of Madness. This one's about an exposition that goes to the Antarctic and the scientists find all these sorts of murals that prove that Earth was created by extraterrestrial beings known as the Old Ones and Mm. that our religious and even scientific beliefs in Darwinism don't matter. (laughs) In fact, nothing matters because everything you as a human has ever known is a lie. And that is pure madness, in my opinion. Yeah. And the difference, though, is that in Lovecraftian horror, the old ones are actually incomprehensible. The only way the narrator can describe them is from images that they personally can understand and relate to them, to. So, whereas the engineers are easy to comprehend, right? In fact, they kind of look like us, which is weird. Mm-hmm. However, they're still unknowable, which makes it even scarier. Probably. Yeah. But that's what's really great about this movie. So many people hate this film, and I can see their frustration, especially if you love the first two aliens. Yes. Because they're completely different films. Yeah. Um, But the actual hate around this, I don't know. I I feel like you can't hate a film that you just can openly discuss and not have any answers. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I, mm. I guess I can see why that's frustrating. Yeah, but I kind of like that you and I are kind of at a standstill. Like, what? Huh? Like, no matter what we say, there's always maybe something to counter it. Right. Well, I think that's <laughs> honestly the whole point of the film. I mean, that's why that's why I had that quote from Jay Bauman, because he was like, I don't know what this is about. Sometimes you just don't know. And that's like Shaw. She doesn't know. She doesn't have any of the answers that she was really looking for. She actually ends up with more an- or more questions exactly. than what she started with. Exactly. So it's like, maybe there are some things that you're not meant to know. I don't know. It's all about <laughs> everything you've ever known being completely obliterated. And then when you have questions, they never get answered. Wow, that's really frustrating. It's it really sounds frustrating. like being depressing. on the phone with spectrum cable that's what it sounds <laughs> like <laughs> if you're not on the east coast like it's our internet here and it sucks <laughs> it does Ah, all right well let's go on let's talk about killing the creator because that's a huge theme in this yeah so according to david mcwilliam quote the billionaire's creation of synthetic life in the form of the android david recalls the achievement of mary shelley's modern prometheus victor frankenstein who infuses dead matter with Life in Frankenstein, mm. which was published in 1818, mm-hmm. thus stealing the divine spark. Hmm. Oh. Like Frankenstein, Wayland recognizes a paternal connection to his creation, but instead of rejecting him in disgust, he acknowledges the limitations of this his technology on the grounds that David lacks a soul, unquote. Mm. Okay, so a few things about this quote. Um, I do feel that by treating David like he is a second-class citizen and saying things like he doesn't have a soul shows that he is kind of disgusted in him in some way. Yeah, yeah. It's low-key disgust. (laughs) I low-key hate you, David. (laughs) I think so. Like, I think he, like, David is this marvelous creation, but he's still just a robot. Yeah. To Wayland, he is inferior. And I think it's telling that David says to Ellie towards the end of the film, don't we all want our parents dead? And right before he walks Waylon into the control room with the engineer, he says this. And and who knows what David actually told the engineer? Oh, yeah. I have always wondered that. There are no subtitles and the other crew members cannot speak the language. So David probably said... Like, this guy created me and he wants you to keep him alive even though he's a gross old man who needs to die, like, right now. (laughs) I don't know. Or who knows? Who knows what he could have told him? And, I mean, 
like he might have wanted Waylon to die so that he, David, could be free. Yeah. And David, much like the humans, has advanced beyond what anyone would have thought. <laughs> and the same thing has ha- happened happens to Frankenstein's monster. He learns to speak and he learns poetry and he's smart and he's smarter than what Victor ever believed he could be, mm-hmm. which brings us to killing the creation, which is also a theme in this. Yeah, this subject actually reminds me of previous discussions we've had on males who create life and I I think we talked about it in our episode on the fly. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason why Ellie doesn't allow herself to basically incubate the fetus that's growing inside of her. And it's because she can feel how threatening and ominous it is to her own health. Like, it's not a baby from Charlie. It's a foreign body that was put there by David. Because David lacks those human emotions and, like, chemical bonds and that kind of thing. Like, he doesn't see any harm in using his own creators to conduct his experiments. Mm. So the the huge irony in all this is that David was created by humans and in his quest for ultimate knowledge as an AI, like he destroys his makers in order to get the answers he needs to feel more human. It's this weird like circular obsession that never seems to lead anywhere. And he lacks that certain something in his genes. He doesn't even have genes, but he lacks what it is that makes him understand like how to care for your own creation, basically. So, like, his death, or, I mean, sort of death, his destruction by the engineers was necessary. Like, he was a major threat to every character in that movie. Well, and the engineers were like, WTF, the hu- yeah. the humans have just done something. Yeah. They have created something. That's why <laughs> They did what we did. No, 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 <laughs> but really, I really think that that is like a huge part of that film when the engineer uh, decapitates David. Like, he's he is truly disgusted by David. Yeah. This is something that was not created by him, Therefore, it's an abomination and yeah. it needs to go. And mm-hmm. then he kills, of course, all the other humans in there because he's mad at them. But yeah. I think it's pretty telling that he decapitates David in oh. that scene. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I think the the basis of this entire film talks about the human condition, but it also speaks volumes about what it means to create life. It's a strange deep dive into, like, male and female reproduction mm-hmm. and You know, we learn early on that Ellie can't have children, and then she finds herself in the scenario that David, an unnatural, quote-unquote, creation, puts her in. She has no choice but to destroy it because it threatens her existence, which is ultimately the most important, even before her search for the answers of her origins. So... She isn't willing to risk the lives of the entire human race just for the sake of having her own questions answered. But David, on the other hand, willingly sets off the domino effect that leads to the destruction of everything around him. Yeah. Because he lacks that that human condition. Well, and he's almost the opposite. He doesn't want to kill his creation. Mm-hmm. He wants to keep it. Yes. And he wants it to thrive. And we learn more about it in Covenant. Um, you know, it's it becomes the xenomorph and so forth. Yeah. But um, the whole idea of killing your creation, like Ellie, yeah, like you said, like Ellie tries to get rid of the baby alien in her body um but then the engineers try to kill are trying to all kill the humans too yeah they have created this basically this weapon yeah to bring to earth and annihilate earth and only earth and it's like what did we do wrong but maybe it doesn't matter maybe they just freaking hate us (laughs) yeah like we've far surpassed we've again far surpassed like what they ever thought that we could do aka we learned to read poetry like the frankenstein monster Mm -hmm. like we have become something a little too close to them yeah and that scares them so we gotta go yeah so i think it's interesting that david's the opposite david does david wants his creation to thrive yeah yeah Ooh. Mm. yeah dang so let's talk about belief and religion in prometheus so there's this great article by franco macabro (laughs) wow yeah and um 
I referenced, I'm going to be referencing his uh, article for a while because it's pretty good. But um, he says, quote, the film's protagonist, a scientist by the name of Elizabeth Shaw, is a Christian. According to her, Christianity is what she's chosen to believe in because it's what her father believed in. Which is Patrick Wilson, by the way. Yeah, I know. I was very excited to see him in this. I know. Oh my God, I love him. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) it's what her father believed in. So, and therefore, his beliefs were passed on to her, which is something that happens to a lot of people. You probably ended up believing in Jesus because that's what your parents taught you. But does that mean it is right or even real? Maybe, maybe not. But Elizabeth Shaw, when one is confronted with the validity of their beliefs, the answer is sometimes, quote, because it's what I choose to believe, unquote, not because you have proof or because you know what you are believing in is right, but it's what you've chosen to help you get through life, which Mm. I completely love that. I do too. And there's a really good breakdown of the meaning behind the myth of Prometheus by an author on WordPress named... It's just Raphael at philosophyweblog.com. Okay. <laughs> and he says this, um, ultimately, the myth of Prometheus describes how it is solely because humans' existence has no meaning that they are condemned to become free, forced to invent their lives and construct their destinies out of infinite combinations and destinies in the world. Hence, the only true state of happiness for humans can be achieved through the embracement of this ultimate truth. Depicted through the myth that there is no fundamental human nature, but rather total meaninglessness. That there is no human archetype, unlike animals whose nature or essence is merely based on the fulfillment of their prearranged functions, but most importantly, that what truly distinguishes humans from other organisms, overriding rationality, is the fact that humans are free. Greatly inspired by the myth of Prometheus, Satra published his famous work, Being and Nothingness, where he expresses his proposition that existence precedes essence, hence refuting the traditional philosophical view that pure essence or nature of the human race overrides and is more fundamental than its existence. Consequently, This means that humans establish their own values and are condemned to find a meaning for their life because they are not built over a specific model or a precise purpose, and accordingly because they do not possess any inherent nature. Although humans were born without any fundamental nature, their freedom has led them to undertake the task of establishing a meaning for themselves as well as a passion and humanity in the world. Whether it is through altruism, compassion, or solitude, humans experience existential prosperity, the blossoming of inner felicity, coupled with true suffering and burning tears that flourish into the reflection of their true meaning. Mm. So when we look at the film in this regard, it's truly terrifying because you see how delicate the human race is compared to what might be lurking elsewhere in the galaxy. Right. Again, like (laughs) we feel like we are the most powerful thing in the universe. And And like we have all the answers. And we have all the answers. And again, cosmic horror, it's completely obliterated. Yeah. And no, you are worse than an ant. (laughs) You are a flea, a tiny flea in the galaxy. Yeah, you're even. I really feel like it's like you're even more worthless than that. Yeah. Oh, like you are a speck of dirt. Wow, Gracie. No, but really, (laughs) I really feel like that type of horror is so scary. No, it is. Like it is really scary. It destroys your ego. Yes, and a lot of religions, especially Eastern religions, are all about like containing your ego Mm -hmm. and slowly but surely destroying it in your lifetime. Yes. And it's very hard for people to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very hard to destroy your ego. And when it's just shockingly, like, taken from you, you're like... Well, okay, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And I kind of want to add this quote from Franco Macabro. Uh, He says, The search for answers to the biggest questions, it's the thirst for God-like knowledge. Man's thirst to know, which strangely enough is considered a sin in the Bible. Oh, my God. In the tale of Adam and Eve, when they take a bite from the tree of knowledge, they were expelled from paradise. (laughs) 
So to the gods, no matter what religion, knowledge is not something they want us mere humans to have. Knowledge is what makes us like them. Yeah. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, this even sort of relates to, like, Lucifer. Yeah. And, like, it's very, the story of Lucifer is very similar to Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Like, the parallels are insane. And, like, conceptually, like, within, like, Gnostic belief systems, like, Prometheus and Lucifer are just, are they're one and the same. Yeah. So that's something to, that's some food for thought. Hmm. Okay, so of gods and machines, AI and Prometheus. We talked a little bit about AI earlier, but um, I kind of want to dive more into David as a character. And I think it's important for us to understand him because he does things that we as the audience are like, WTF, like what, (laughs) why are you doing this? Yes. Um, But I think in order to do that, we need to also understand Lawrence of Arabia, which is David's favorite film. Yeah. Now, Lawrence of Arabia is an amazing film. It's actually very epic. And I watched this documentary about Steven Spielberg on HBO recently. And he said that he was like a little kid when he saw it in the theaters. And that was what inspired him to be a filmmaker. Aww. This film is really epic. And it's long. It's two parts. Yeah. Um, but I can see... Like, looking at this film, I can see why David has connected to this character and why he might make the decisions that he does. Because according to Laura Michette, she says, Lawrence of Arabia is a story about a man entering a world he doesn't understand, gaining the respect of its people and learning to become like them. He's constantly surprising the people around him, knocking them off balance and earning their praise and respect. He's an outsider who swoops into a problem and solves it with his wits and bizarre perspectives. Most intriguing is David's soft repetition of Lawrence's famous line of advice. Quote, the trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Unquote. <laughs> and I think David watches this because he's studying Lawrence's brand of gal- gallant showmanship. Like he knows he's superior and he wants to show it to everyone else. And mm-hmm. he wants to be praised. And funnily enough, there is an interview where Michael Fassbender talks about David's desire to be praised. Oh, my God. So yeah. Fassbender was definitely on. He knew like what to do with David with the inspiration of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. That, and that's so funny, too, because there's that one scene where he's talking to Charlie and he's like, why do you wear the suit? Like, you don't need it. And he's like, well, I'm more human to make you more comfortable. Like, he knows, obviously, that these humans are mere like, Meh. They're plebeians, basically. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, and in Lawrence of Arabia, um, the in the country that he's in, they give him traditional robes, right, to right. wear, mm-hmm. so that he can kind of blend in. Yeah, and that is exactly what David is doing. Yeah, it's he's so he, interesting. It is. He's a snake in the grass. But I think the thing for me, at least, that is the most frightening about David is. The fact that he is an AI that is so close to being human. It's like that Uncanny Valley kind of thing because he's so beautiful and flawless, which is inhuman at the same time. It's like his movement is so fluid and his mannerisms don't like they're still a little bit off. He remains like so calm in these stressful situations, but he is actually like, one of the biggest threats to the crew. I say, like, that Uncanny Valley thing because it's, like, you can just kind of tell that there's something wrong with him, you know? Like, there's just something not quite human about him. Right, exactly. And honestly, like, going back to everything that we just talked about, like, he is almost, almost indistinguishable from man. And so he is an abomination, Yes. And that's why the engineer wants him destroyed. Oh, yeah. Yep. So final thought. Let's talk about feminism and gender politics in Prometheus. Oh, boy. This is going to be a tough one because I'm I'm very much on the fence and I'm, I'm, I haven't quite decided how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a feminist or an anti-feminist like interpretation. I don't know if I know that the the writers and and Ridley Scott, I don't think that they intentionally intended it for be like I don't think they intended it for to be 
one or the other, to right. be honest. Right. But that doesn't mean we can't interpret what we want. Yes. So, true. There. Stephanie Troutman, who says, quote, the setting of the future and the trope of fantasy provide a space for exploration and engagement with with controversial issues, which in this case leads the film to reify uh, reactionary gender politics, especially as it relates to reproductive freedom. Embodying long-standing stereotypes, the film depicts Vickers as a controlling and heartless autocrat. In fact, her own survival matters more than the crew's well-being for the fate of the entire human race. While there is much to be said of the Shaw character in terms of her disempowerment at the hands of male crew members and supernatural species creatures, the most salient aspect of Shaw's disempowerment emanates from the violence against her body, culminating in a shockingly anti-woman, anti-choice message, unquote. Mm. Now, Troutman believes that our main heroine, Ellie Shaw, who is educated and strong, is consistently punished throughout the film for not only being a woman, but for being curious and smart. Well, I will say this about the film. Like, Vickers reminds me of Ripley in the Alien franchise. She's doing whatever is necessary for the mission, the crew, and the ship. Like, she makes her decisions and she stays concrete in her goals. You know, even if they might not be the most, you know, I guess, not the best goals for everyone else on the ship. Yeah. They're selfish, ultimately. But, you know, Ripley was a very cut-to-the-chase character. And I also feel like if Vickers was a man, like, we wouldn't even bat an eye to the way she ran the ship. So I'm going to argue a little bit with you here. Um, I agree with Troutman that Vickers only makes decisions based on her selfish needs. And I mean, you said it too, but I don't think she does anything good for the crew or the mission. (laughs) She just sucks. She, much like David, is only trying to get the respect and praise she desires. David tries to get it because he's inhuman and Vickers tries because she's a woman and feels like she needs to prove a point and oh. she's not that she doesn't want to she doesn't want anyone to think that she's soft she doesn't want to break in front of anyone like cry or be gentle like we learn that vickers right is the daughter of wayland and she actually acts like robotic and masculine like david mm-hmm. and possibly trying to impress her father and she shows, ev- like, when she shows even just one ounce of femininity, like, Wayland pushes her away. Like, when she's stroking his hand and yeah. crying, yep. he immediately is, like, disgusted by her and pushes her away. And-, and she plays up this facade so much to the point that Yannick right out rudely asks her if she's a robot. Oh, yeah. That scene is terrible. I hate that scene I so much. I do, too. I do, too. And it's not until he says that that she asks him to sleep with her so that she can prove him wrong. I hate that. And I hate it so much. She was not interested in sleeping with him at all before that. Yeah. He's the one who was like, uh, if you just wanted to sleep with me, you should have said something. You know. And she's like, God damn it. Like, I don't want it. And then he's like, are you a robot? And then she's like, you know what? C- come to my room in 15 minutes. I and also like, hate. Yeah. I hate that he is the only black person in the movie. And that's what they give him. Yes. I'm like. And he dies. I know. I'm Actually, like, the two characters the of color in this film die. Yeah, for real. And it makes me so mad. Yeah. She has got a lot of internalized misogyny. She does. And, like, really the only time she shows any concern for the crew is when she doesn't allow Holloway back onto the ship. Yes. But, to be honest, I think that she's more afraid of losing her elderly father who was on board rather than the crew. I think she was afraid something was going to happen to him rather than everyone else. Oh, yeah. And Ripley, of course, didn't want Kane back on the ship because she was worried about everyone. Right. And Ripley, yes, was very cut to the chase character, but I feel like Ripley also had some humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Ripley is a hero. And I don't think Vickers is at all. Is at all. I don't think she's a hero at all. Yeah, and you're right. She even abandons the ship at the end. She will not go down with it with the others. Again, like, does this mean that she's a feminist character? I. Eh. It's tough because, like, she's villainous and selfish. Women are constantly at the front of this, is this a feminist film discussion? Which, obviously, is why we're discussing this now, of course. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's important to have unlikable women in films because all feminists really want is equal representation. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, Vickers is an unhealthy stereotype. Yeah. She's the shrew. Yeah. 
So it's a uh, catch-22, I think. Yeah. It's hard. I'm also kind of surprised that Charlize Theron would take a role like that. Yeah, because she's a goddess. Yeah, she is. She's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I actually thought that she was not a good actor in this. Me too. I felt like her performance was forced. I was just going to say that, yeah. And I guess someone might argue with me that she's holding back. She's trying to hold back her emotions and yes. be more robotic. And like that's part of her character. But I would disagree. I feel like she was overdoing it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And even when she was being more feminine by like holding his hand, I even thought that was like too much yeah yeah i feel like nothing about her was subtle Mm -hmm. and it's like just because i don't like her as a character doesn't mean like i don't it's hard it's like i don't mean like i like all women should be like these angel beauties in these films right i just feel like it could have been handled differently yes i agree so Hmm. i don't know i felt like it could have been done differently how i don't know i'd have to think about it yeah but i just feel like uh, I think really truly that scene between her and, and Yannick is what ruins it. Yes, 100%. Because I think I, if she had just walked away and not been like, come meet me in my room, uh huh, it would have felt more like she feels like she doesn't need to prove anything to him because he's just the captain. Exactly. But she, her ultimate goal is to prove her father. Mm-hmm. I just felt like her in, her agency was distorted. Or if she did want to have sex with him she could have just been outright about it instead of this like very coy like (laughs) adolescent like back and forth that they have with each other it's just because what's so what's also kind of funny is that she immediately does like push-ups after she gets out of the cryostasis yeah and everyone else is like puking and throwing up like they can't handle it Uh uh-huh i would have loved a private scene of her maybe puking right and not showing anybody not even David. Right. I would have loved maybe a little bit something to sort of show that she's not, maybe not really like this. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know she's not when she's like holding her father's hand, like it's all fake, but Uh I don't know. I think a lot of um, fans of like the Alien franchise too, like kind of were wondering if she actually is a robot. Yes. I have heard theories. So I don't, I don't know. Let us know, guys, what you think about Vicar's character, really? because we're like, what the F? Really? And like I said, this film, no matter what you say, there's going to be something to counter it. I know! <laughs> you never win. Um, you never win. But let's talk a little bit about Ellie. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to Ellie Shaw and the way she handles <laughs> her own abortion, basically, she decides to take control of her body. And, you know, I've read more than a few accounts of women and they're experience giving birth or having an abortion and like the coldness of david mixed with shaw's feelings of being utterly alone are not unlike these experiences and the way the news is delivered when ellie says there's no way she could be pregnant and the way that david like drugs her and tells her to calm down it's frightening because even though this film is fantasy it mirrors a lot of those experiences that women have and we see it kind of play out in real time like the med pod is designed for a man so ellie has to adapt and overcome in order to make sure that she's taken care of medically and she knows her life is in danger and she cannot wait to be saved so she uses her own scientific knowledge and background and stuff to get her through her ordeal i can't really tell if this is like a moment of empowerment or if it's meant to be like i guess I guess, like, a fantastical way of looking at what happens to women and, mm-hmm. like, the health care that women receive. Yeah. Because, to me, that's how I interpreted it. Like, that's what it felt like. Oh, absolutely. And I, I felt the same way. When I was watching this for the first time in theaters, I was, like, kind of younger. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, this is terrifying. It made me, like, I don't know. Just the, the way that everything was so sterile yeah. around it. I think, too, like, this film really says more about the male ego mm-hmm. and how far it will go to get answers. Yeah. And how toxic ambition can be and how corporate greed at the hands of old white men can be devastating for those in its wake. Yes. Ultimately. Like, if if we want to look at it from, you know, I guess, like, a feminist perspective, 
I for me that's what it boils down to. So yeah, and <sighs> you know that part I do agree with. I don't agree with Troutman when she talks about it was an anti-abortion message. Oh yeah, I think it's the exact opposite. Same. Um, whether intended or not, I right. think it that's the message. And I think you were right. Like taking control of your body in a male-dominated world, like the freaking machine isn't even built for a female or just a general <laughs> human. Yeah, for that matter, it's only for a man. And that would be, like, someone who was born a man even, too. Like, right. that is what it's for. And right. the fact that this is was added in is so strange. Yeah. But it's really telling because, like, they didn't have to put that part in. Really, well, the machine the machine could have easily just taken as long just to complete a C-section. Mm-hmm. Like, no time is is wasted in her being, like, no, like, I need a C-section or whatever. It, mm-hmm. it literally is a second where it's like, this is only for males. And then she's like, okay, an, an abdominal, like, surgery. Then. Yeah. It's yeah. only for a second. It doesn't waste any time. So the fact that it's added in there is really interesting. It's important, this scene, not only because it's one of the best filmed scenes in the film. But oh, yeah. Uh, Ellie Shaw is trying to work her way around a male-dominated healthcare system, just like you said. And and I think that and she can't get the care she needs. And, like, so many years later, like, we are still fighting this battle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, if we want to be grim about it, like, why wouldn't she still be fighting the healthcare battle years and years and years into the future? It's ridiculous. Well, I will say that those quarters that Vickers is staying in, those are Wayland's quarters. Mm, so that they're not even hers. Right. Yeah. That med pod is for Wayland. Yeah. And it's like Like Vickers he, is just a guest in his home. Right. And that's yeah. exactly how it feels. It's like the entire healthcare system is designed to meet the needs of men. Yeah. Even when they're not even present. Right. So it's like <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good observation that like Vickers lives in this male world. Yeah, these these both these characters are subjected to trying to please and work around men in this. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing also for the scientific community, which is getting a lot better. But I feel like that discomfort that some women have to go through in order to just have a goddamn career in science. It's yeah. like, mm. that's yeah. very present in this film. Mm. So I think that it's actually a really good scope of what it means to be a woman in the scientific community and also a woman who has to deal with healthcare in yeah. our country. Yeah. So that's how I feel about it. Wow. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just, that's it for yeah. this week's episode <laughs> of Good Morning Nancy. Hey guys, don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there sometimes, so become a patron, won't you? Yeah, and you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.